Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 38. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. This show today is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. It's never been easier to catch up with all your reading. If you're like me, having trouble getting caught up on all your reading, you like to read, but you just don't have the time, well, Audible.com is a solution for you. With over 100,000 titles to choose from, your favorite books, I guarantee you, are out there on Audible.com. If you haven't tried audiobooks, I highly encourage you to do it. It's been a great solution for me. You can listen as you're driving to work, you're exercising, anytime. You can download it to your smartphone, your iPad, whatever you need to do. You can easily get caught up on all your reading special offer for all you listeners out there you can go to doseofleadership.com slash audible or you can click on many of the banner links i have on my website and you can download your free audiobook any audiobook they have there available you can also try their services for 30 days at no obligation and again it's a great resource to get caught up with all your reading audible.com thanks for all your support i continue to love the feedback i get i answer every email every twitter every facebook message so if you can find me out there Please connect with me online, and uh, I enjoy hearing from you. Again, enjoy the interview. Well, I'm so pleased to have on the show to distinguish Dr. Stephen Schneider. He's the founder and managing director of Schneider Leadership Group. He's also the author of a new book out there called Leadership in the Art of Struggle. That's a book where Stephen Schneider brings his uh, breakthrough concepts based on years of leadership studies, intensive research, a lot of data derived from extensive interviews and with real-world executives and CEOs from major corporations. It's also where he talks about his own leadership practice when he was uh, with Microsoft in its infancy, where he worked closely with Bill Gates, also with his experiences as a CEO of a publicly held company. He's got a pretty big big brain on him. He's got a master's degree and doctorate in psychology, a, a bachelor's in uh, mathematics, a master's in business administration from Harvard. Gosh, with all his real-world experience, his vast knowledge, his academic background, he makes him a perfect guest here for the Dose of Leadership podcast. Mr. Schneider, welcome to the show. Are you ready to give us a dose today? Uh, indeed, Rich. It's uh, good to meet you, and uh, yeah, let's get started. Yeah, hey, talk to me about it. I was curious, you know, when I started reading the book and looked at your bio, I didn't, you know, it was a pleasure, um, pleasant surprise to learn about your time at Microsoft. You know, I was a computer science major and a proud a computer geek, I like to call myself, and um, so I'm, I was always interested about the the beginning stages of Microsoft and Apple and that whole deal. Tell me a little bit about that beginning and, and how you got started with Microsoft. Yeah, well, you know, when I joined Microsoft in 1983, Microsoft was 250 employees, and during the time that I was there, we grew from 250 to over 2,000 employees. Wow. So it was a period of explosive growth. And Microsoft had obviously started in 75, so they had been about eight years down the road, and they were going through a, an important metamorphosis. And, you know, you can look back on that time as a pivotal time in, in Microsoft history uh, now, but, but when you're going through it, you really don't understand the magnitude of the important shift that Bill Gates had to make during the time that I was there. Uh, and, and I had the 
good uh, fortune to be able to actually observe this and, and actually be part of the transformation of Microsoft uh, from one leadership point of view into a, a very different leadership strategy. Uh, Microsoft, from uh, the time it was uh, conceived until the time I got there, had been run primarily as a technical hierarchy where essentially one development engineer, one engineer, reported to uh, an engineer who was more capable than themselves mm. technically. Right. And that was a hierarchy and a, a, a chain of command in the development organization that Bill Gates rightly saw as important to be able to motivate engineers. What he wanted to do is bring on engineers that would be able to be motivated and respect the, the boss who they're working for from a technical perspective. Right. Well, that structure worked very well for the first decade of Micro's, Microsoft's organ, uh, uh, tenure, but, but, but as we grew in the mid-1980s, it became apparent that we needed a business unit structure mm -hmm. where there was a business unit manager, a general manager, that would take responsibility, business strategy responsibility for a business unit. Like, for example, I, I ran the development tools business unit. And that business manager was a, a, a business-oriented person with strategic skills, ability to analyze customers and markets, but not necessarily the guru technically. Right. And we made that transformation, and I was kind of the guinea pig for that, because we needed to from a competitive standpoint, but it was a huge shift in the way Microsoft organized, and uh, in, in particular, the way Bill Gates thought about leadership. And I saw that transformation. He called this new structure the inverted hierarchy because something was topsy-turvy about it. Yeah. But it was exactly what was needed for Microsoft to move in the next generation for the, you know, for the future. So essentially you went from a if I can understand this, at the beginning you had kind of a traditional setting where the boss, if you will, the, the person at the top of the hierarchy was the one that was, was most technically adept, the, the professional had the most experience. And, exactly. And, and I think intuitively we, we understand why that would seemingly work, um, but then all of a sudden you found out that it wasn't working and you shifted and it was upside down, and so the person at the top wasn't necessarily the expert, uh, maybe an expert in strategy, but they decentralized the the decision making and all the the kind of the front lines were really the true experts, right? Did I summarize that right? Well, yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm talking about product development, right, which is right. the lifeblood of Microsoft. And yes, um, uh, but w when you say expert, that's a that's an interesting question because the question is expert in what? Yeah. And as Microsoft got bigger, and we grew the complexity of the different markets that we served became really, really overwhelming to any leader. And so you needed somebody who, who could understand these markets at the, at the micro level. Like I, I uh, oversaw the development tools market, the market for uh, we sold to programmers who were using Microsoft products to create 
programs for other end users. So we were the tools business. Uh, we 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 provided um, developers with the tools they needed to create the software, their software. And, and and that business got very complex with its own competitors, and they needed uh, a person to become expert in that market, yeah. who is not necessarily the expert in how do you create a compiler, but rather, what is a compiler used for? What do customers want in compilers? And how does Microsoft beat the competition to be the best in class in, in, in the market? Yeah, so the expert at this, as you, what do you say, topsy-turvy type um, hierarchy, the expert at the top really is the expert in the big picture, kind of the, the strategy, as you said, putting it all together. Which, exactly, yeah. and, and that turned out to be, during the time that I was there, a better way, ironically, of moting, motivating engineers because they realized that they were working towards a, 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 a market-driven, customer-driven goal. Yeah. And what that organization did was it connected the engineers closer to the customers that they served. Yeah, I see. So the catalyst was that was that was Microsoft kind of leading that? I mean, I, I'm I'm naive to this, but what was what was Apple's hierarchy at that time? Were they experienced? You know, I guess what I'm hearing and I guess what what I experienced is the technology was changing, the market was changing, everything was changing so fast. You had to switch to this kind of uh, model. Was Microsoft the first, or was what was Apple doing at the time? Well, well there there were other companies. Um, first of all, Apple was all messed up. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs uh, did a number on Apple. I yeah. mean, basically undermined a lot of what Apple's doing was doing at that time. And so, Apple's not a good example. But what we had as models were um, other technological organizations that were further along the, the organizational growth cycle than mm-hmm. we were. Uh, and, and, yeah, that there were, uh, you know, a lot of models for this. Uh, uh, you know, for example, IBM model. The IBM uh, uh, was a very good model uh, for this. And, and, you know, we studied IBM's organization. I actually, when I came to Microsoft, I actually was a liaison with IBM, so I had a chance to really understand IBM's organization mm-hmm. and how it worked at a very in-depth level. Uh, but yeah, there were other examples of that of organizations that were further allow- further down the growth curve. But we were, uh, you know, at a at a very different stage in our growth. You know, we were a very young company that had been very successful doing uh, with an organizational strategy, as I had described. Right. And so what I'm talking about is really the courage that Bill had to leap to that new organization that. His gut was telling him would be better, yeah. but all of his experience was telling him, you know, boy, it's working really well right now. <laughs> how difficult was that transition, and how immediate were the results? Well, um, uh, first of all, uh, part of part of this is to kind of pick the right people, and I was the guinea pig. You know, I was the first one that 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 they put in as a general manager. And so I was kind of on the front lines of not only defending my market against attack an attack by a, a very fierce competitor, Borland International, but also really being the guinea pig of this or, new organizational structure. Uh, you know, the, the results were immediate. We were much more capable at the business objectives that Microsoft had to accomplish 
with this new organization, we were able to have discussions, strategic discussions, uh, that that we we didn't have uh, before this organization. One really good example was, uh, you know, when I became the general manager of that group, Microsoft was uh, all of that the the the, the group's resources were focused on supporting a Windows launch. This was 1985. And, you know, I called to attention, you know, is that the right decision? Shouldn't the resources be focused on markets and competitors uh, as opposed to supporting Windows? And and that really raised a conversation that really wasn't had before I came, you know, into that role. And so it allowed us to have different conversations and make different decisions. We were very successful at the business goals that we set out, which was defending our market against an attack by a very fierce competitor and uh, really thriving in a very rapidly growing market. So yeah, the results were immediate. That's interesting. I, I love that kind of the behind the scenes. I you know this I didn't know about any of this stuff, but that just I find fascinating. How how um, how would you characterize Bill as a leader back then, and how much did he change over the years? You, you know, this guy is is incredibly smart. Obviously, he's very very smart. But the thing that's not well known about Bill is how much of a learner he is. Mm. It's not only about being smart. But it's, and I think it's actually more about learning and growing by talking to others and studying, you know, the the problems and actually learning and changing. And Bill is exceptional at that. You know, I characterize in the book, I characterize uh, the different strategies for learning and, and growth and navigating through difficult situations between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs really, um, the first time he was at Apple, you know, here is the founder who burned out, yeah. who essentially uh, undermined his own purposes and, and actually caused Apple at the time more harm than he was doing good and, and caused him to lose a power struggle and get tossed out onto the sidewalk. Yeah, it seems very chaotic when you read that bio and you look at the, wow, what a chaotic situation. Yeah, and, and the point is is that Bill was much more attuned and sensitive to learning what was adaptive and how to adapt and how to focus his energies on productive courses of action versus Steve Jobs, really, the first time he, he was at Apple, he really undermined himself and he undermined Apple. Yeah. And I think I focus on, on that uh, a, a lot in my book, yeah, uh, Leadership and the Art of Struggle, because really... The art is about embracing the struggle, learning from it, and instead of fighting it uh, and, and being rigid about your own direction, really learning and embracing the struggle. And that's what Bill Gates did. Uh, now, of course, Steve Jobs did that the second time when he was back at Apple. He, he did a phenomenal job yeah. uh, of adapting at that time. But, you know, and no one would call either Bill Gates or Steve Jobs the perfect leader, because there, there is no there such thing as a perfect leader. That's a myth. That's right. And, and people should get, just get, get that out of our mind. That's a dysfunctional myth that society burdens us with. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that we're all human beings. You know, Bill Gates is a human being. Steve Jobs is a human being. We're all human beings. And, uh, and what we need to do is recognize that we are. But what Bill did exceptionally well when I was with, uh, at Microsoft 
was embracing the struggle and learning from it and becoming a better leader for it. Yeah, what I love about your book, and, and it is a topic, and it, what struck me when in the early parts of the book where you read about it, it is leadership is a struggle, and it is so true. And I think, and and you hit on it just in your previous comments here. You know, we don't openly talk about it. We have this perception or this myth that it's a sign of weakness or a source of shame if if you if you talk about that you're struggling as a leader. But struggle is a very natural part of leadership, right? It is indeed. And if we wake up and embrace that, then we can put ourselves into a whole new mindset. We, we position ourselves with a mindset for growth, for not, not, not remaining rigid or fixed, but rather growing and learning as, a, as leaders and taking in the new situations and adapting to what is necessary, changing, changing ourselves, reinventing ourselves. We allow ourselves to become open to all of that. And that's what my book really does, is it, it, it takes us on a journey that recognizes that leadership is a struggle, and how do we best embrace that struggle, not as some four-letter word, but rather as an art to be mastered. And the whole book gives advice, step-by-step advice, on how to go along that road of mastering the art of struggle. Yeah, it's broken up into three parts, and I like it. It's you know the first part you focus on, the first uh, five or six chap- five chapters I think is you know how to become grounded. Then you kind of shift into an, an area of okay, now you're grounded. Now you got to you know kind of explore new pathways. And once you get through that, then you can start you know what you call deepening adaptive energy. Can you kind of summarize some of those those areas of the book? Or yeah, the 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 book is organized based on my research where I studied 151 episodes of Leadership Struggle. I asked extraordinary leaders to tell me about their most intense struggle and how they navigated through those difficulties. And what I learned is that struggle throws us off balance. Mm -hmm. And, And we're not aware of being off balance, but we need to pay attention to it. We need to pay attention to the to the signs. For example, we could be emotionally off balance, like we could find ourselves getting very angry, or we can become depressed or retreat into self doubt. Or we could be physically off balance. We you know, like our sleep patterns could be interrupted. We could be waking up in the middle of the night, you know, and worried and anxious. Or or one one female executive told me that she was so stressed out her hair started falling out. You know, we we can be off balance in many ways. We can we can uh, you know be calm and collected at work and take all of our anger out on on our families. You know, there there are a lot of ways of being off balance. We need to recognize that we're off balance. And then once we recognize, once we awaken to the fact that we can we're off balance, we can pay attention to that and then set us on a path to regain our balance. And that's what the section about regaining, uh, becoming grounded is, is all about. It's recognizing that, that when we're in a very difficult time, we need to take a step back. We need to pause. We need to breathe. We need to get back in balance. We need to do the things that get us back into balance, like make sure that we're on an exercise regimen or make sure that we're eating right or make sure that we take time for for ourselves it's it's amazing when we when you think of being 
you know, in in the abyss of of the struggle, taking five minutes to breathe and just collect yourself can be so therapeutic because then you begin to see all these new pathways. You see, you, you know, once you calm your body, you begin to see all of, all of these new pathways. You begin, begin to see the, the situation differently, and you begin to see new alternatives that you hadn't seen before. And that's what's so important. And then, as you continue down this journey of mastering the art of struggle and learn to put in place these practices that are in the book, then you learn about this thing which I call adaptive energy, which is this quality inside of us that what we need to do is, is that the, the quality points us in the right direction. But unfortunately, it, we often become mired by the baggage, by our fears and, and, and by our, our anxieties. And once we remove that baggage, once we become grounded and remove the baggage, then our adaptive energy starts to kick in. And we see these new pathways, and then we can deepen it and, and, and really further learn about it. And in the later part of the book, I tell stories about how Bill Gates really peered into the future of being able to predict what's going to happen into the future because he was able to channel his energy adaptively. And that's what the book is all about. It's a progression of how leaders can move from the state of anxiety and chaos in the midst of struggle into a more focused, more productive, more adaptive leadership that really brings all of their leadership skills uh, out and, and helps them evolve to be better leaders. Yeah, it's a great point, and I love to, to, to emphasize that point. I think especially if anybody's listening out there and and I've seen this a lot if you're if if you're trying to make your way as a leader a leader can make a lot of hay if they figure out a way to live within the chaos and and a lot of times I see people just get so exasperated because they try to completely eliminate and and squash the chaos and the reality is you can't and I don't mean you got to come and bring and I've said this multiple times on this podcast that you bring gasoline to the fire but that's what I loved about the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps, they said, "Okay, look, it's chaotic as it is. Let's learn how to invite. Let's learn how to live within the chaos." And that's what I took from reading the book. It's like, okay, there are ways to compartmentalize and live within it. Again, if you can eliminate it, that's great. But at the same time, business is chaotic. Life is chaotic. You never know what's going to come up. There's always something unexpected going to come in your way. And so the leaders that can make the most hay, in my opinion, are the ones that can learn to live within the chaos. I think your book touches on it fairly well and how do you kind of deal with and manage the chaos. I've never really read a book that talks about kind of the um, centering your mind, body, and spirit part, but it is an, an essential element of leadership. And you know, it's interesting. There was a study uh, done uh, where they actually gave, um, uh, I think they were Marines, I'm not, I'm not positive, it was, it was the Armed Forces, where they actually gave them training on meditation as well as the standard resilience training before they deployed. Yeah. And, and, and it turned out that people who had this training on med- meditation, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a contemplative uh, a quieting of the mind, actually, in combination with the standard resilience training, actually did better than people just with the resilience training or had no none of the psychological training at all. It turned out that this really works and has an additive effect. So you're absolutely right. But I, I would go one step further. It's not only living within the chaos. It's really 
thriving yeah, in the that's chaos. Much better. It's put. really embracing the chaos. Yeah. Embracing the adversity, saying that's just the way the world is, and saying now how can I thrive in this chaotic and and um, uh, unstable world? How can I? be the leader that I want to be, that I envision that I can be. And it's all about learning. Yep. It's all about learning and growth. You just can't stay stagnant. You've got to continue to learn and to grow. And if there's one message that I would have to, to, to each and every aspiring or, or, uh, or, or current leader, it's continue to grow. Yeah. Learn how to learn. Yeah. Get better and better. Yep. Having a passion, I agree with you 100%. Having a, a love affair with learning, I think, is a, a key critical step. If you don't have it, you're right. You're, you're going to be stagnant. You're going to be overwhelmed by that chaos. you got to be willing to to fail, too. And and uh, that's where the, the fear part comes in and, and be willing to be vulnerable. I, and one of, that is a consistent theme in all these interviews and all that we talk about is, you know, getting to the point of vulnerability, getting to the point of courageous authenticity and, um, all wrapped up in that is, and being vulnerable, being authentic is having a passionate love affair with learning in my opinion. Yeah. And, and also putting in place a set of proven practices. The, the practices in my book were researched based on these, these uh, conversations that I had with the, the extraordinary leaders. So these, I didn't just invent these. Right. These are practices that extraordinary leaders, leaders that we admire, who, by the way, each one of them went through their own struggles. And the stories they were telling me was, were how they were thriving through the, those struggles and, and, and putting in place these practices to learn and to thrive through the chaos. Any favorite, uh, you know, you do got a ton of stories in the book. Do you have anyone that really uh, sticks out? I love the reinventing one with Captain Joe Kelly. Is there one that, um, a story that really sticks out for you? You know, uh, it's kind of like children. They're all yeah, my favorites. Right. Mm-hmm. Each each one of them is very precious because they, they teach us about um, – uh, so many different uh, aspects of leadership. For example, uh, I tell stories of, of uh, uh, Joe Dowling, who was the youngest artistic director at the National Theatre of Ireland, um, uh, and how he struggled with the board of directors. And, and, and then uh, uh, there's a story about a retail uh, executive whose uh, firm, a merchandise executive whose firm was purchased and how she uh, really struggled through the uh, the acquisition. And then yet, by contrast, another retail executive uh, who became the chief merchant of Target. And it's interesting to contrast these struggle stories. They're very different struggle stories. They teach us, they all teach us uh, something different. The stories are woven together so that as you read the book, you begin to get more and more of an understanding of what we're really talking about, about the art of struggle. So you read these stories, and I, and I, and I ordered the stories, I, I sequenced the stories in a way to reveal different aspects of the art of struggle and how to master it and embrace it, uh, you know, a, along the way. So there's a there's kind of a, a purpose of if you will of of how the the stories are are woven in and also they're woven in with with conceptual uh, frameworks that is what is what do the stories mean and then practical advice how do you put these stories to use with your own story and some some specific exercises that that readers should do 
apply it to their own situation. Any, uh, you know, you've been a CEO yourself. Any struggles you'd like to share with us? Well, in the book, I talk uh, uh, a little bit about my own struggles. First, at Microsoft, uh, I talked, I alluded to it a little bit before when I mentioned that we were um, developing a product that was uh, 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 that was consistent with the Windows motherload, and I needed to convince Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer that we were on the, a different path. And fortunately, they listened to me, and and we uh, we worked it through. Uh, I have uh, another story in the book about uh, a time when I was. Uh, uh, leading a company that had vent, invented a recommendation engine, and uh, we uh, sold it to Amazon. Amazon was our first customer, and the struggle was what to do um, when Amazon asked us for an exclusive uh, marketing arrangement for our product. So, yeah, there are a le- lot of uh, struggles. There's a lot of lessons learned, uh, and I must say, you know, I've been uh, I've been in the places of some of the characters in the stories mm-hmm. as well. I could empathize, and we all can yes. because we've all been there. There's tons of compelling stories in the book. That's what I love about it. it, it uh, that is the, probably, to me, one of the best parts of the book are the compelling stories. You can get something out of every single one of them, and you can relate, and all of us can. There's, there's, a, there's a situation we can all relate to. I think it's a great accomplishment, Stephen. I, you should be very proud of it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Rich. Well, where can they find you? I know we got a, I'll, I'll have links to when I put the post of the podcast on my website. I'll have links to all this stuff. But uh, SchneiderLeadership.com, right? Is that the yeah, primary place? SchneiderLeadership.com. Schneider spelled S-N-Y-D-E-R. SchneiderLeadership.com is my website. And uh, my uh, my book is Leadership in the Art of Struggle. It's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other fine booksellers. Yep, and it's a great book. I highly encourage everybody to go out there and, and get it. Stephen, I'd like to have you back on the show again sometime. You're willing to come back, and uh, there's so much more we could talk about. You bet, Rich. Love it. Thanks for coming Love on the show. about leadership. Yeah, that, it, was, it was fun. And, um, like, again, I'm, I hope I can always get nervous when I get someone with as much credentials as you. But uh, I felt like I kept up with you. So thank you for, uh, for being gentle with me on the, the subject there. I appreciate your expertise. Well, thanks so much, Rich. This was a very enjoyable interview. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Stephen, and we'll talk to you again. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.